0: This is a Spirit of Truth Radio Network original program.
1: Planning a vacation might include booking flights, hotel reservations, and reading restaurant reviews. It might be dreaming about lying on a beach. Instead of that, my guest in this episode prepared himself by letting himself go. This is an extraordinary story of an extraordinary man and his nine-day vacation. Nine days dedicated to understanding the plight of the homeless. Joining me along the way is the CEO of the Brian O'Connell Homeless Project, Walter Fineran. Walter, welcome.
0: Thank you for having me, David.
1: Hey, man, it's really great. You know, I got to say, I sat with you for, I don't know, probably about 20 minutes. I, I'd known a little bit about your story, but I didn't know a lot. And then I went back and I saw some, uh, some YouTube videos of, of you. Your story is actually amazing. And, and, and I have to tell my audience, when I met Walter... We we're sitting there talking for, like I said, 15, 20 minutes, and all the things that he's saying, I'm just hearing the St. Francis prayer coming to life. You're an amazing guy. You did an amazing thing. You took your time. You put your money where your mouth is, first of all, but you, you took your time and you actually went and you wanted to understand. Walter, what was it you were trying to understand?
0: Well, like I said, I'm no better than anybody else. I'm just a simple man with ambition. The way I go about things is a little bit different than most. I've always been jump-in-both-feet kind of guy. So our, our our mission has always been to help the homeless. Mm-hmm. As you know, my wife's twin brother, Brian, died homeless on the banks of the Naugaduck River. His remains were found by a childhood friend of Father Sullivan's from our home parish. And they began to plan a funeral for a homeless man that no one knew and asked that during the homily of one of the Sunday Masses, how many people would attend the funeral for a homeless man no one knew. And practically everyone in the church raised their hand. Testament to that was three months later when we did finally hold the funeral on a Tuesday morning in February, there were over 350 strangers that attended a funeral for, not only they didn't know the man who had passed, but they didn't know me or my family or our story. Mm -hmm. So having seen that, inspired me during the eulogy to commit to starting this foundation. It was two years into the foundation and having supported for a couple of years those outside in need of our help. On Christmas Eve, when I attended midnight services with my wife and we heard the homily and the gospel about our Lord Jesus being born in Bethlehem, the realization came to me, as did to Mother Teresa of Calcutta is that Jesus was born homeless. Mm-hmm. You know, we've always heard the story, but n- nobody except for Mother Teresa has ever put it in those exact words. So as I left the Basilica at 1.30 in the morning, <laughs> that Christmas morning, the green in New Haven was covered with homeless. There had to be in excess of 35 homeless men and women strewn across the benches. And I decided to try to... Re- lift everyone's spirits. It was a cold night. It was a miserable night. I went to the glove compartment, my car, and I grabbed $55 gift cards to Dunkin Donut. And I called over the crowds and I, I said, come, let's celebrate our Lord's birthday. And I thanked everyone for, you know, listening to me and hoped that they would pray with me to our Lord. And they did. And as I handed each person a gift card, I said, I want you to have breakfast with Jesus on his birthday. (laughs) And each of them took it and proceeded off to the 24-hour Dunkin' Donut. But about halfway through the crowd, what caught me was one of our friends in the crowd screamed to me, you don't know me. And I said, you're right, Bill. I don't know you. I know your name. I've met you. We've talked. But I don't know why you're on the streets. I don't know what your story is. But today, you're going to have breakfast with not just Jesus, but also with me. And I'm going to learn more about what your story is. And to this day, some four years later, Bill and I are still very good friends. I haven't been able to get him in permanent housing, but he's one of those homeless that are destined, unfortunately, to be on the streets. Um, You know, shelters are not their place. Um, You know, wine and alcohol are... by precedence in his life, and, you know, every man to himself. But it was after that experience that I said, Bill was right. I need to get to know the homeless, and I discussed it with my wife, and I told her, I think you, you're going to think I'm a little crazy, but my first week's vacation this year, I'm, I'm taking it with the homeless. Mm. And, and she asked me, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm going to prepare to present myself as being homeless. So get ready for a husband that's not going to shave or cut his hair for the next three or four months. Be prepared at the end for a husband that's not going to bathe or brush his teeth for in excess of two or three weeks. You know, And I don't mind sleeping in the garage and working in the yard because at the end of the day, these people may be homeless, but they're far from stupid. And if you think you're going to be able to fool them with some yuppie showing up in a pair of dirty pants saying he's homeless, it just ain't going to happen. So Pope Francis said it best, and I might have mentioned to this, this to you, is that Pope Francis says we as a Christian or as a Catholic community, all, laity and clergy included, need to take on the smell of our flock. In other words, get, your, get down in the dirt and work with your people. If you don't, you're never going to know their needs, wants, desires, or requirements. So I prepared for three and a half months so that on April 1st, I left my home on a Saturday morning and put my thumb out. And with no money, nothing but the clothes on my back, I started on a nine day adventure as a homeless person.
1: What were you feeling when you did that?
0: I mean, scared. Tell scared. me about, tell mean, about that. Scared. Well, it scared. Like I said, To be scared is something, but it it was more the anticipation and the uncertainty of what I was going to be presented with and how I was going to handle it. Mm -hmm. I said, the Holy Spirit has guided me through my entire life. He's especially come to light and led me through our service and my wife and I's service helping the homeless. And I know that that seed was planted. In my brain by him, mm-hmm. by, the, by the Holy Spirit. And I truly believe that the Holy Trinity will not put me anywhere that I don't need to be. And to be scared, I've always said, if a homeless man or if anybody is to take my life in the process of me performing my service, then so be it. Because what greater gift than to have given one's life to serve those in need? Well, how did Christ sa- save us by himself offering up his life? So the only regret I would have is that it would shorten my time here on this earth to do more good. Mm-hmm. If, but if that good can be accomplished in one act, as gruesome as it may be, then so be it. I'm not going to doubt or question anything that I am told to do or perform. That's you know, just not who I am. I just want so, to make
1: sure everybody knows that we are talking about we're talking to Walter Finneran who is the CEO CEO of the Brian O'Connell Homeless Project. It's a 501c3 and from what I've heard um they do not they don't they don't cheap out when they when they give good clothing. They give good clothing, they give good warm clothing to people. They they give good blankets, they give quality stuff. And I've heard nothing but good things about this organization. So if, if there is somebody out there that that's looking for a 501C to take care of the uh, homeless, please, I, I ask you that you will reach out to the Brian O'Connell Homeless Project, and we'll give you an email or and uh, contact information at the end of the show, and it'll be in the show notes.
0: All right. Thank you, David, no. for saying that. And let me say one thing on that point. And my wife and I both truly believe that we will not feed anyone anything that we will not eat ourselves we will not put anything on someone else's back that we wouldn't put on our own back the quality is not a price mark or anything else it's a guarantee that the products that we're distributing are going to have longevity and last anyone can buy a bargain you know and we won't name the big box stores or anyone else but you know where you can go and buy inexpensive sneakers or shoes and we've tried it You know, the first year I gave out 300 pair of shoes. One of the big um, tag stores from down south offered me a tremendous deal, um, knowing we were a 501c3. But the issue was, is a week or two after we distributed the shoes, people were coming back and they were talking to us. Not the people, the shoes were talking to us. The soles had separated. You know, this is hard work. To say that you need work clothes, these people are working 24-7, surviving To put anything less than dunham boots or, you know, solid workable shoes on them or, you know, L.L. Bean ducks that are going to have a lifetime warranty, Carhartt jackets that the construction crews wear. You put them, you know, after a winter, they're dirty, but very often if the guys are willing, I take them back and I have them dry cleaned over the summer season and we redistribute them with their names and back to the same people. And there's two reasons for that. The first is to revive them and refresh them to get them good. But more importantly, typically you give out stuff and when they stop using it, they lose it. It gets stolen. And this is why you'll see so many homeless people and you'll think it's mental illness. But the reason they're wearing their jacket in July is so that someone doesn't take it. Wow. Okay? So, you know, if if you could provide and think outside of the box as to how you provide support and allow it, to perpetuate and be able to go from year to year that's the most important thing like i said there are some that will, will not go in shelters and i don't blame them the shelters are hell holes you know why they try their best why is that because they're full of people like this world that are trying to get over on someone there are people that attend these shelters that aren't even homeless that use it as a means to propagate their evil to go in and corrupt and steal and take from those in need. You know, people ask me all the time, "Well, don't you worry when you give something that maybe that person isn't homeless?" Well, it's on the same note of stealing. Mm-hmm. If someone is willing to come to me and assume the identity of being homeless to reap the rewards or gain of something that was intended for the homeless, that's stealing at its worst. I mean, you go to, you know, stealing is a sin, but stealing. What was intended for those in more need than yourself, well, that's a higher level of sin. And it'll be treated as such, not by Mm -hmm. me. And that's what I tell people. It's not for me to judge who deserves what or what. I give on the instance that they need it. Mm -hmm. If they're not, if they're lying, well, their judgment will come. And that will come to us at the end of the day. You know, you hear the stories all the time. Oh, they're collecting money here. And I see them go around the corner and get in their Mercedes and drive off. I'm not denying it. I'm sure that happens. Mm-hmm. That's human nature, right? Yeah. The to, to fool, ski, you know, look at the biggest scoundrels in the world, the Bainey, Bernie Madoffs and everyone else. They didn't care who they took it from, just as long as they filled their pockets with unnecessary greed and wealth. We don't, and none of us need any more than what we need to survive at that given time.
1: You know, Walter, you're you're really you're hitting a a spot with me right now because with all the hurricanes and everything like that, it have you know devastated Florida. There's so many people that are in need right now, and there are so many people out there that are you know scamming and and taking money away from where it really needs to go. And and you know what you're saying, I'm right there with you, my friend. And it's despicable when when you do take from those that really do need simply for your own desires.
0: Yeah. And and there's nonprofits out there that, with good intent, and there are some evils going on within them. But, you know, the, at the end of the day, what we need to do is just support those who need us the most.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we will get back to, you know, how people can support you and uh, you're awesome. Oh, one awesome. Of,
0: yep. One thing on the support and all, and there are hundreds of good nonprofits out there. Things that turn me off. I, I was listening. You're talking about the storms down in Florida and the hurricane Ian that hit, you know, Naples, and I have family down there and everything else. But the groups are great. The organizations are are excellent. But you got to take everybody with a grain of salt. I had a news reporter. Turned my stomach this afternoon when I watched the news report, and she says, be wary of nonprofits that say 100% of the monies go to help those in need. There's got to be administrative costs. Well, I wrote an email to the to the news channel. Uh, that's nonsense, because our nonprofit not only gives 100% of the monies collected to those in need, to the homeless, those living outside, we go as far as we don't even take gasoline for our own cars. Mm. We pay for everything as we go. All of our volunteers are fully responsible for what they need to do their mission on that given day. Mm -hmm. What we do supply is food and the recruitments, the equipment necessary to prepare meals on the spot to feed as many people as possible at the most cost-effective price. So we go out, we buy fresh food, like I say, only what we put in our own mouths. We've prepared freshly on the spot by health department regulations and we distribute it and whatever's left over at the end, we give away and we leave them with, you know, water and clothing and whatever else we can supply.
1: Well, even our blessed Lord said that we would always have the poor and it's great that you're, you're doing some tremendous work. Walter, I want to go back to your story. You planning a nine day vacation, and you've you've gone, and you've you know for a few months you've prepared. You've let your hygiene go. You've you've really become a character actor, and and you're gonna you're gonna really gonna make this thing work. Now you're outside. You're you're hitchhiking down the road. Where did you go? What were your what were your first thoughts?
0: Well, I was better prepared going out on the street than most people are. Most people wake up one day, lose their job, and short term are out on the street. I had time to prepare for this so i didn't prepare a route but i prepared myself for wherever i found myself where i knew there would be support shelter and food so i committed to memory a list of food pantries services to provide hot meals or meals to those living outside and organizations that would offer shelter in the different towns now, not every town has that facility or that capability, so when I left Watertown, Connecticut that Saturday morning, I put my thumb out on Route 8, and I found my way, you know, several rides down going through the valley, you know, areas where I had worked, you know, uh, Norgaduck, where my brother-in-law passed at, at his campsite right along the Norgaduck River. I went down to Shelton, the Spooner House, where I fed homeless people and went out to see if I saw anyone around there and by the end of the day, made my way, way down to Bridgeport. Bridgeport is where I decided that I would spend the night. Ultra poor town.
1: Yep.
0: Oh, you know, not the safest area no, in Connecticut, not. to say the least. And I spent the night in Paradise Park. And as I said in my talk, it was far from paradise. <laughs> there was a group of us hanging around, a, you know, burning garbage can. And, you know, we were warming our hands and some bread and Sharing what we had to eat, and they were passing a bottle of wine around, and you know, you, you shoot some craps, you play some dominoes. You, you know, I don't make like want to make it sound like a night at Foxwoods. It was far from a night of gambling at the casinos. It was killing time, and I realized not right away, but soon into my week on the on the road, how important that is because when you're on the street, it, it it's virtually impossible to sleep you know, you're constantly can't let your guard down. You, you're you watching out for the weather, for traffic, uh, you know, the criminals, the people that are going to want to hurt you or rob you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you sleep with one eye open, literally, you know. Uh, I, again, I got accustomed to what I was in store for. I talked to people about staying in shelters and When you, the nights I did get to sleep in a shelter, the tricks I learned was, you know, you sleep with your shoes under the legs of the bed because they're so good. They'll steal the shoes off your feet while you're sleeping. Okay. But they can't lift the bed and get them out. You use your knapsack as a pillow, hoping that they, they won't take anything from you. Um, You know, I, I spent nights sleeping in that night in paradise park. I didn't sleep at all. I left the park around 1, 2 in the morning and I walked, sat on the curb, prayed, said the rosary uh, dozens of times, prayed for my wife and, you know, just prayed that the night would end. And finally the sun rose and I walked out to 95 and put my thumb out and headed for New Haven to do it all over again.
1: Wow. At any point, did you, you know, through those nine days, did you call your wife?
0: No, I had no phone. I had no money. The money that I collected collecting bottles or panhandling, barely put food in my mouth. I starved for the better part of the time I was out there. I had three decent meals at shelters that I found in Middletown and in Danbury. And my final, so the way it went, it went from Watertown down through the valley into Bridgeport. The next morning I was able to grab a ride from a truck driver, a real nice guy got me I wanted to go up to Middletown, but he got me up as far as New Haven. Um, so I spent some time in New Haven, but Middletown for that night—that was my destination. Middletown, Connecticut, is probably have has the most abundant homeless population of anywhere in our state. Okay, mm-hmm. and that's a result of the mental institutions and halfway houses being shut down during the budget crises in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. All of these people were forced into the street. The state consolidated into the um, Middletown River facility, which is like 14 buildings uh, along Route 9. And that's where all the homeless went. There's this facility for youngsters, teenagers, and adults all on that one campus. But it was a quarter of the size of the total you know, between what was in Middletown, Southbury Training School, and Southbury, in addition to four other Halt Group facilities throughout the state, were mm-hmm. all shuttered. And you know, what they could, they put in that shelter. But everyone else wound up on the street, and they're still there. We have generations of do we, homeless.
1: Do we have a, any kind of a count on how many people are actually homeless in Connecticut?
0: In the state of Connecticut, this past year. In account, to time, which, uh, account in time, which is a census of the homeless nationwide, I'm on the committee that services the Connecticut area, and we accounted for 850 homeless throughout the state of Connecticut this year. Okay, mm. it, It's a tough number to, to validate, um, just like unemployment is so tough to validate, because after a while, when unemployment is up and people start stop asking for help, how do you count them?
1: Right.
0: And, you know, my biggest concern are the homeless veterans, and there should not be a veteran on the street in this country. There's enough programs in place. The trouble is bureaucracy. And whether it's a veteran or it's a homeless person that needs help from the state or from you know any of the other action communities that are out there, The bureaucracy and the paperwork is so intense and labor intense that they don't have the mental capability to hang in there and go through it. My wife, after COVID last year, she sat with 14 individual homeless people. It took each of them two to three days to go through the vetting process to get them housing vouchers under the COVID relief plan. But all 14 of those people wound up with one-year housing vouchers. Because of the tenacity of my wife to sit there and not allow them to get pushed out the door. When they started losing their patients, she would get them coffee, she'd give them a break, and just they don't have it. After they left that office the first time, mm-hmm. they, they wouldn't come back. Yeah. They'd just be another statistic. So to be able to push them through and get them in. Now, the sad side of the story is going into this, I said we got 14 people. And I didn't know how many would make it. Well, now we know the year is up and, and only three out of the 14 will remain in permanent housing.
1: Mm.
0: We, we had people that lost it due to alcoholism in the first two months after their free rent vouchers ran out, they didn't pay the, the rent and wound up on the street. We had one elderly woman, which was a real success story that we had. She wound up being a hoarder. And I, I, at the point where I finally got a permanent housing vouchers for wife on contingency that her apartment be inspected and the apartment that my wife and I had gotten her last year was cluttered and the landlord evicted her. Mm. So not only did she lose the apartment we got, she lost her opportunity for a housing voucher for life. The woman's 63 years old. There's no re- She was married. She was a mail order. I wouldn't say a mail order, right? She was an immigrant here on a guest or visitor's visa married a construction worker, lived happily in a home in Southernton for 22 years. The husband passed and had never let her know how to pay the bills or that there were bills to be paid. He kept her sheltered as a control mechanism, I believe. So she never learned the language. She never learned how to write. So when he died, she didn't know that you had to pay the town of Southernton a tax bill. She didn't know that there was a mortgage bill that had to be taken care of. Short term, nine months, the pink slip was on her door. and three months, she was on the street. The padlock went up. She lost everything she had established in 22 years. And she wound up living in a tent on Thomaston Avenue in Waterbury for three years. Her first night in the shelter, they stole her false teeth. So she lived three years toothless in a tent at 62 years old. That's a crime. That is so, that is crime. And and you really hope it was a success story, David. We had her there, but again, the mental illness. Yeah. These people when we when we had this woman apartment emptied, it was filled with cartons of brand new goods that we had given her. Because these people have so little, their only value or their only worth is what they accumulate. This is what hoarders mindset is. They mm. have no savings account. All of this brand new stuff and packages, and I see this in the homeless encampments, they they hoard and they save this stuff, and then it winds up snowing or a downpour of rain and everything they got that they were trying to hold on to is destroyed and winds up in the mud. Mm. What what a sin. But I we talked about when I went homeless and I always say, oh, it's mental illness that causes the home... I began by my ninth day when I finally wound up across the whole state and wound up over on the, the West side of Connecticut in Danbury, I was losing my own sanity. I, you know, I had spent two nights in shelters. I had spent six nights in the street sleeping in the gutter. I spent one night that rained in a dumpster, you know, it was probably the best night's sleep I had once I got over the rats running across my feet. But, you know, I had a roof over my head and I, insulation you know mm-hmm. the cardboard kept me dry and warm for the night but you know the idea that everybody these these people don't have any self-worth that they collect goods to try to give value or purpose to their life they don't even wind up using the stuff that in all good intent was to help them live better mm-hmm. this poor woman grazina when she got thrown out of the apartment she was still wearing dilapidated, torn, used clothing. Yet she had boxes full of brand new stuff that we had given her. The pastor who had helped her move into the apartment and got her the furniture and the kitchen supplies, everybody was giving her stuff. And and, and she just accumulated it to such a point that it was her downfall. That's what caused her to lose her house. Hmm. What sort of... How do you make any rhyme or reason out of that? You or I would say, you know, oh, aren't they smarter than that? Well,
1: obviously not. Yeah, I've never walked in their shoes, but you have. So let's go back to your let's go back to your your journey, this nine day journey. Okay. And now you said that you had, had gone to shelters that you had actually done work with in in the past.
0: Yes. Did anybody Let well, me notice- start with the shelters. The first shelter I stayed at was in Middletown. Mm-hmm. But it was at the end of my trip when I was starting to lose my sanity. And I, I virtually had a breakdown at one of the shelters, Good Shepherd Shelter over in Danbury. And I, I broke down in the arms of a counselor who I had served Christmas and Thanksgiving with the year before. I worked behind the counter as a volunteer with them but obviously my disguise was so good that he took me for another homeless person. And honestly, I'm glad he did because he was the one that allowed me to regain my sanity, to be able to make it back home again. Uh, I I might've wound up on the streets forever. I doubt that my sanity would have gone that far, but you know, you begin to question, you know, where do I live? Who am I? Where do I belong type of thing? So, you know, The shelters are a great place. The food kitchens, soup kitchens are all wonderful places to go in. The issue we have with the shelters is the safety concerns in the shelters, especially for the women. The women are assaulted on a regular basis, okay? And I don't want to cast dispersions or any disparity against any one group, but a lot of people are required to do service time as a condition for parole or other releases. And they're put in these positions and they use these positions to their advantage to take advantage of those that are less fortunate. Really? Yeah. And I know this for a fact, okay? And and that's a shame because how do you vet, you know, it's great to, you know, how do you qualify people for volunteer service? It's really, you know, and if you're forcing people to do volunteer service as a means for their parole release, they can't even supervise these parolees, never mind who they're putting in, in harm's way, putting them out there. Wow. You know, the, I mean, the shelters do a great job, and I, I, I love everything that St. Vincent de Paul and the other groups do throughout the the, the country, but unfortunately— They're understaffed, undersupported, and as a result, there are holes in the system that are allowing vulnerable people to be taken advantage of. So when you get people that tell you they won't go into the shelter, and you press them, and some will tell you and some won't, but the horror stories I heard, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I, I slept better in the dumpster that night than I did in the shelter. Not to mention the shelter, you you know, they don't allow drugs or alcohol, but they find their way in, Mm -hmm. the fights break out, there are weapons, there's dangers, you know, people are held up, you know, I wouldn't say at gunpoint, but I, I witnessed people being held up at knife point, you know, you know, a nice pair of shoes, you don't stand a chance holding on to them, you know, they're taken from you, at any chance that, that people get, so, you know, you you hang on to everything for dear life. You protect yourself and you shelter yourself, so, you're, so that you can uh,
1: your huh? life in the shelters are is basically just a desperation. It's
0: it's to prevent you from freezing.
1: Yeah, but but I mean, it's you're constantly in a in a state of desperation. It sounds
0: like well, in homeless is a state of desperation. The yes. shelters are no better than being on the street. Is what I'm getting at. It's mm-hmm. you know, it's the same. Battles and challenges you have sleeping in the gutter. You have sleeping in the shelters. And I I realize they have a need and they have a a purpose. But part of the other problem is the homeless and them not want to go in there. A lot of these homeless have pets. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they'll freeze. You talk about how many homeless. Well, we have six less than Waterbury this year because six died. Okay. froze to death under porches. They won't go in the shelter because they won't take their animals. Well their animals are their that's their companionship. That's their safety net. That's everything to them. Is that dog. Many of them go hungry themselves to feed their pets. You know, I, I've given a sandwich to a guy and he give half that sandwich to his dog. Wow. Okay. So, you know, they they're humans. They're just they're no different than you and I. The, the only difference is they hit a hard time. And so many of us will experience a divorce or a loss of a job. And to most of us, it's a stumbling block and we get over it. But to some, it winds up being a spiral in depression and leads to homelessness and very often death. So, you know, how we handle our situations, every person is different and how it attacked them and how they're treated after affects them. Mm -hmm. So the human psyche is a very delicate thing. And I think the most important thing when dealing and anybody listening has to work with the homeless or help the homeless. To me, the most important thing before you give them anything, learn their name. I I, I met a guy the other day and he wouldn't give me his name and he wouldn't give me his name. I, I finally, I said, why won't you give me his name? He says, well, they just call me ghost. And I said, what does that mean? He says, well, I don't exist. I'm invisible. And I did finally get his name out of him. And and I tell you what, this next day and the day after when I did greet him and I greeted him by his name Mm -hmm. rather than by ghost or by, hey, you, you need a sandwich? You know, be able to talk to him and hold the conversation. it, It turned that guy's psyche right around. His whole outlook on things changed. Maybe it was just me. But he saw it as one person. Somebody actually cared enough to learn who I am and what, what I... I may not be able to give him everything he needs, David, mm-hmm. but what I can give him is the support that he needs to move forward, to try to better himself. And and that's so important. I have two veterans up in Torrenton that won't go in the shelters. They like to drink. They're both Iraqi veterans. Mm-hmm. They served together 6 years they were discharged together they got an apartment together and they couldn't keep it together even with their you know veteran benefits they found that you know <laughs> booze was a little bit more important than rent but at the end of the day they know how to survive these are survivors so they're living in tents and the tents get knocked down with the rain and the snow and they said you know we could really use something better but the problem is I you might ask if somebody asked me where do they sleep? Where do they stay? Where do they find these encampments to, to stay in? Well I can tell you in the Norgaduck Valley, everywhere between Route Eight and the railroad tracks from here to Shelton is full of homeless. Mm-hmm. Okay? Every vacant abandoned lot people move into. Dog parks in certain towns are have areas. There's a soccer field on off El Grasso Boulevard, right down from the Knights of Columbus World Headquarters, that has 50 homeless mm-hmm. encampments, 50 tents. There, we go out at least every month or two and provide meals to over 100 people at that location. You know, yep. so it, it it's just so important to be able to locate them, be able to help them. And see what their needs are. Those two veterans, what I was getting at, I built two lean tos, nothing fancy, plywood platforms covered in astroturf, raised a foot off of the ground, wooden poles on the side supporting the structure of a canvas tent on the top. But I installed 8,000 BTU propane heaters through a back safety wall. That are vented and these shelters are able to maintain 60, 55 to sixty degrees in the coldest weather. So now they have a place that's not going to get washed out. Mm-hmm. If they do have a torrential downpours like we've been experiencing, the water can flow underneath their shelter and out to the rivers or wherever else. You know, I went to Poor guy, good friend of mine, local kid, went to school with my own kids. I, he called me one night. I was at a picnic and I, I go out to see him. The downpour, when I showed up at his encampment, it was one of those people. He had a year's worth of supplies I had given him stored in Tupperwares. When I got to his encampment, all the tarps that were hung up protecting everything were on the ground. They looked mm-hmm. like kiddie pools. And, you know, he, he, he didn't have the mental capacity. Get it back again. He was ready to throw in the towel. He goes, "This is it, Waltz. I'm taking it." I said, "You take." He says, "I'm taking my life. This, I, I can't do this all over again." Well, I went out with a team of volunteers and we built him one of those shelters and we put him in it. And unfortunately, I've been trying to get him permanent housing, but it's he, he, he's pushing back. Mm-hmm. I get him uh, get close and. Next thing you know, he's all good. I, I got him in a hotel over the 4th of July, got him cleaned up, sent him up, you know, take a shower two, three times each time he came down. I told him better, but go back, got his hair cut, got him dressed up. I was with ready and had appointments to set him up for permanent housing. And out of the blue, he just flipped on me, refused to get back in my car after three days of helping him. When we finally got to the point where I could have gotten him to that interview to get him into an apartment, he, he started ranting about he didn't want to be on no one's list. Mm. He, had, he went into this conspiracy theory nonsense and, you know, it's, what do you do? Yeah. You know, the guy grabs onto the doorframe of your car and refuses to get in. I called the crisis center in Waterbury here, Western Connecticut Health District. The appointment was with them for a mental evaluation and a crisis team. I said, look, I got him. He won't get in my car. Send the crisis team out. Oh, they don't leave the building. I was going to ask what you What do you mean that? they don't leave? Why don't they leave the building? They're a crisis team. Do you have that many crises on Thomaston Avenue that you need a crisis team? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it's just bureaucracy, David. And, and, you know, it upsets me. And, and you got to work around it and try to do the best with the tools that they've given us to help.
1: Yeah. You know, I have to tell you, Walter, I think you know that, and I know my audience knows that by profession, I'm a land surveyor and I have come across a number of encampments in my job. And it's, it's kind of scary at times because you don't know what, what somebody's going to do to defend what little they have.
0: Well, that's their house. Mm-hmm. And that's why people say, oh, I want to bring food into here. No, you call in and then you invite them out. Would you want someone walking into your living room? Even if it's to offer support, no. Mm. You're a land surveyor. Kevin Zach, the man who found my brother in laws remains, runs a nonprofit called the Norgaduck River Revival. He has spent the last three decades returning the Norgaduck River to its original glory. I hold him personally responsible for the return of the bald eagle to the Norgaduck Valley. Because if you clean the river, you bring back the fish, what comes? But the birds of prey. Sure. Now, he, in his process of cleaning the river, he actually put my brother-in-law in the encampment he stayed in. He had gotten a homeless man, homeless Reg, into permanent housing. And when he found my brother sleeping on, brother-in-law sleeping on a trail, he said, oh, they're going to make this into a greenway. You better move because they're going to come and chase you out of here. He moved my brother-in-law into River Reg's encampment. And that's where my brother-in-law lived for three years. Kevin lent him support. And one summer he was very busy with a group called the River Brigade, which are teenagers that get paid to help volunteer or work on the river with them. So at the end of the River Brigade season, when school went back in, he said, I hadn't seen Brian in a while. He went down, the encampment was there, there was food in the cooler, the ice was gone, cobwebs were all over, the chopping block was still there, the axe was stuck in the stump, no Brian. Said, all the shits here so he went back to his house and got a rake he started pulling through the leaves and found the degraded the skeletal remains of my brother-in-law mm. so you know your fact that you're going in and you're seeing these things that's what kevin sees and you know he tries to you know help where he can when he can but um you know he, he still sends a lot of homeless our way like killed out of know where people are and <laughs> quick funny story is um I talked about the people that have passed, you know, over the past few years, specifically here in Waterbury, and we'll get a call occasionally from the mayor's office and they'll ask my wife about this particular homeless person that was found and if we knew anything about them. So I told, well, if the mayor of Waterbury is calling you, I said, I told my wife, you must be the mayor to the homeless. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, everyone they ask about, she, you know, can identify them and if there are. Family members, we put them in touch. Um, I talked about heating and stoves and propane and the dangers involved. I I had a homeless man behind BJ's in Waterbury asked my wife for electrical tape. And I asked her, well, what does he want the electrical tape for? He says he wants to fix the hose on his propane grill. I said, no, no, can't do that. That's dangerous. So I went to Walmart and I bought a regulator and a grill and said, here, if he wants to roll the duct tape to fix his shoes or hold his pants up, great. But if you're going to – well, we had a gentleman right down the street from me later that same winter, this winter, his hose leaked, had a propane explosion, and it literally blew his face off, killed him. Okay? And why? Because you're working with dilapidated gear, trying to heat and cook and do what you can with what you have in the field. Mm -hmm. And, you know, propane, if you have propane on your deck, you know how rodents love the smell mm-hmm. and they come up and, you know, they chew on the hoses and the hose that could have been fine. yesterday gets a couple of rat teeth holes in it and you go to fire up your grill. Next thing you know, bada boom. Yep. And that's what happened to poor Tom. We we had to bury him and he was one of the six, wow. the two that died on the two separate porches and abandoned houses, you know, just trying to seek shelter to keep out of harm's way, you know, and, wow.
1: Walter, before your your uh, brother-in-law's death, how involved with the homeless were you?
0: I was involved helping people get into homes since my Eagle Scout project in the 70s when I worked with Housing for Humanity and worked with homeowners building sweat equity homes for themselves. Okay. Um, I worked with volunteer groups and soup kitchens my entire life. I, I spend more Thanksgivings behind-the-counter serving meals. We typically celebrate Thanksgiving on my house on Friday <sighs> because that's when we have time to cook our own meal and celebrate with our family. Christmas, Thanksgiving, any other holidays, I, I try to be and always have been in the shelters trying, or the soup kitchens trying to help those need. From the time my wife and I were born in the Bronx, back in the 70s, all the way through till we moved to Connecticut in our 90s. And, you know, I said, oh, I'm going to the country now. I'm moving to Connecticut. Well, let me tell you, when I moved into Stamford, Connecticut, it wasn't a far cry from the South Bronx I had left. There are parts of Stamford, Connecticut, the most wealthy town in the state, that are in bad shape. Sure. I mean, you don't find the homeless in Greenwich. You know, you, you don't find them in Westport, but you find them in Stamford. You find them in Norwalk. You find them in the surrounding towns. You know, the good towns, they get pushed along. Yeah. You know, nothing upsets me more, David, that when a homeless organization or a group tells me that they will only help a homeless person in a specific town. And I hear this across the tri-state area. So mm-hmm. you're telling me that if I'm standing here and there's a homeless man across the street in Noggeduck, you're not going to bring them a sandwich because at the end of the day homeless by definition means they don't have a town they're transients mm-hmm. and they're forced from city to city by the police when the pressures get pushed down from town hall the homeless are moved from area to area and they'll get away with it for a few months till it gets out of hand and summer comes and all of a sudden a park that you know was a great place during the winter for them to stay all of a sudden, the citizens come back to use it again in the spring, and, well, the police get the call, and the homeless are pushed down the road to the next location, and that's their life. Whatever town happens to be giving them a hard time, they find themselves in another town, and, you know, it, it goes on and on. I, uh, I, I got homeless friends that have been on the street for 10, 12 years. Oh. We get people from the south. Down south, they have a, a policy called bussing and they'll buy you a plane or a bus ticket to anywhere in the country if you sign an agreement to not return to your hometown for five years. How, how is that humane in any way? How can you tell someone to stay away from their family, away from the town they grew up in, on the promise that you're going to give them a bus ticket because there's jobs in Waterbury? Because there's, there's no, There hasn't been a job in the Norgaduck Valley since the 70s. I mean, come on. But this is what they do, and they push these people from area to area. It's a vicious cycle, and now you have people from the South who are thrown into New England and expected to survive in winters that they've never experienced in their life. You know, you and I know the tricks. You work in the field. I, I've, I, I've been a, a scout most of my life. I know when you're, you you start feeling your hands getting frostbite, I know to stick them under my armpits to keep them warm. These people that grew up in freaking Daytona Beach, they don't know how to keep their hands warm in a freeze in an ice storm. They don't know how to protect themselves from the cold or anything else. They've never had to deal with that stuff. And mm-hmm. we put them in a position that they have to deal with it and that this becomes their life, mm-hmm. you know? We, we pay for busing all the time. If people want to leave or people want to go home, I, I tell them, ignore that. One guy told me, I, I, I can't go back to Louisiana because I signed an agreement. I wouldn't return for five years because they gave me a bus ticket. I said, tell them to try to enforce it. Here's your bus ticket. You got family. You got a brother down there. You got support mechanism down there. You go back. You try to make it. You're not making it up here. The winter's coming. Right. We'll send you where you want to be. You know, if it's going to help you, let's get you there. That poor woman, uh, Grazina, we were all set. We were working with the State Department. I was going to pay for a plane ticket back to Yugoslavia. But then they invaded her country. So what do you do? You know, it's like I say, you can't let it get you down. You just every time you get thrown a curve, every time you get knocked down, you just got to get just like they do. I said, if everybody was to give up, if I was to give up the first time I got thrown a curve or somebody didn't help us do it, you know, this would have ended years ago. But you just keep on battling. You fight the good fight. You do the best you can.
1: Walter, I'm so sorry that, that you come, come across this every day. This must be really hard on you.
0: To see people in need hurts me deeply. But to know that I could even help even one mm-hmm. to be, have a little bit better of a day to be a little bit more compassionate to someone. You know, I'm not gonna get them all into luxury condos. That's not my intent. My intent is to make their miserable lives a little bit better, one step at a time. And if it leads to permanent housing and they're acceptable and it works for them, great. But if I get them in and they fall back out into the streets, you know, I ain't gonna hold it against them. I mean, they, you know, if they're back where they were, I'm going to try just as hard. We try to get people into, we get people jobs all the time. I mean, you don't know how many McDonald's or Dunkin' Donut uniforms I've paid for in the last two years. Because if there's a job available, we'll find it for them. And when places like McDonald's say, well, you've got to buy two uniforms before you can start at a cost of $100, well, that's unobtainable. Mm-hmm. So we make it obtainable. I, I go to a Dunkin' Donuts in the morning, and this poor girl, she, she pushes out her way over to the drive-up window just to be able to thank me every morning. That she's in a job that my wife found her, that she's in an apartment, that her, her daughter is out of protective, out of children's services and back living with her. That's a success story. That's a a life that was saved. That was two lives that were saved. The mother and the daughter are both hopefully gonna be able to move forward. She's two years, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm pushing her for, you know, a high school equivalency exam. I'm pushing her for that next step to get her a little bit better. She doesn't need, she's on her feet. She's in an apartment. Now it's easy to look for work. If she can get the education, she can get the experience. There's no reason she needs to stay at a minimum, you know, paying job. She can work her way up and she's got the drive. She looks in her daughter's eyes and and she sees a need and a love that needs to be addressed. I saw that need and love in her eyes. Mm -hmm. And that's why we moved forward. And that's why... For everyone I save, if two fall by the wayside, you know what, this tomorrow, and if I save another one or somebody else, then, you know, we just move forward and, you know, baby all, steps.
1: Always forward. Walter, you know, when you and I were talking the other day, you told me how there, you were at a church and you were looking for some directions.
0: Yes. What was the... <laughs> Let me tell you the story. I, so I, Please. <laughs> all right. So I had an idea. I said, I'm homeless, and I went to a couple of the churches where I'd given talks about the homeless and spoken to different civic organizations, and the parishioners all seemed very outgoing and pleasant and wanting to help. So I said, let's show up Sunday afternoon on on the doorstep, and I purposely did not go out and panhandle. I purposely went to these churches out on their sidewalks and made myself available to ask directions to the local soup kitchen or to the local shelter. And people just turned a blind eye, turned their back on me, refused to answer me, all the way across. So I said, you know what, when I got back home, I went back to those same churches and I showed up in my sports car with a jacket and tie. And I pulled up to the same corner and I said, Hey, where's the nearest McDonald's? Or, hey, where's their Dunkin' Donut? People graciously got out of their way, told me, explained, pointed to me, gave me directions, wrote down how to get there. I was no different. It reminded me of a book I read back in the 60s called Black Like Me. And it was about an author, and I'm I'm drawing a blank on his name now. But basically what he did was he did an experiment in the South where he went for work, and for help and for housing and then he went back and he treated his skin with a pigment that darkened his flesh and he went back to the same organizations and wasn't even allowed admittance to the same areas. So you know, there's a prejudice in this world against the homeless. And I understand the fear and the conception of laziness or something that people have—that they're only there because they're lazy. That's not the case. And again, if it, if they are lazy, that's not our place to judge them. If you want to walk away because you think he's lazy, walk away. But don't condemn him, don't curse him, or belittle him for what he is or what he has. Help him for where he wants to be or what he needs to do. Lend the help and the support to them. You know. We're in a world now, and I think I said this before, is that if we stop driving a spear between the segments of humanity and try to be the glue that bonds us together, we won't have the problems that we see. Instead of coming closer together, we're driving a stake between the different denominations and the different classes of people, and we're driving them further apart where we need to be brought closer together. And when we're brought closer together and when we see the face of our brother and everyone we meet, then we're going to do good. When you drive a spike and say this person's different or this, these people don't like my people, or these are all mistruths. These are all, you know, conceptions that people have to divide our society. And we can't do that anymore.
1: Absolutely not. Walter Finner and You are a gentleman that sits in the pews at the Basilica of Immaculate Conception in Waterbury, Connecticut. I thank you for joining me along the way.
0: Well, David, thank you for everything you do. If you want me to give my quick blurb, we are the Brian, not the, it's spelled Brian O'Connell Homeless Project. We are a full 501c3, where 100% of all the funds collected go to direct support of those living outside, okay? No administrative costs, no gasoline reimbursements, no car reimbursements, everything. That's my donation. That's my volunteers' donations Mm -hmm. that they give of their time and their vehicle and gas money to go out and seek out those people that need us. We're on the web. You can Google search Brian O'Connell Homeless Project. We distribute a product called the Brian Bag, which is nothing more than a blessed bag that we put our own name on it, but we have a specific formula that every bag, and there've been over 50,000 distributed by us in the last three years to homeless. And the Knights of Columbus and other church organizations throughout the country have distributed in excess of 200,000 Brian bags.
1: That's great work you're doing there. So for my guest, Walter Finnery, my producer, David Imhoff, I'm down the hall, Dave, always praying that your troubles be less, your blessings be more, and nothing but happiness comes from your door.